Hey, uh, if you didn't bring your Bible today, these ladies are going to give you one. So just raise your hand and let them know that you need a Bible. It'd be awesome. My name is Joe Martin, and uh, I'm from Dallas, Texas. I wasn't born in Texas, but I got there as fast as I could. I was born actually in Little Rock, Arkansas, lived all my primary, uh, junior high and high school years in, on a ranch in Tennessee, and graduated from high school, went to school at the University of Mississippi, the Harvard of the South is what most people call it, <laughs> Ole Miss. And uh, the day after I graduated, I got in a car, packed it up with my stuff, my girlfriend's stuff, and moved to Dallas. And so I've been there ever since. People say, well, wow, that was pretty abrupt, wasn't it? You know, uh, I dated a girl for three years in college. We got engaged December of my senior year, December of her junior year. And, uh, and from December until March, we fought almost every day. We broke up in March. And so I had two months, really, of being, really, the first time single in college in my whole career, almost. Uh, two weeks before I graduated, she called me and she said... Um, I need to talk to you. I said, sure. I mean, I didn't talk to her at all. We broke up. We really broke up, you know. And so I said, sure. And uh, she, said, uh, she said, great. We, we picked a place. And she sat down, and she was nervous. And I said, what's the matter? She said, well, I'll just tell you, I'm pregnant. You're the father. Now, uh, I can't tell you how my life passed right in front of my eyes in that moment. <laughs> You know, because uh, not only have we been broken up, but we weren't getting along at all. And so I said to her, I said, well, it looks like I guess we'll get married anyway. She said, no, we're not going to get married. She said, I'm going to go to Dallas and get an abortion. And um, you can come with me if you want to, or you don't have to. Nobody knows. I said, well, absolutely, I'll go with you. And so I graduated on a Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning at 8 o'clock, I, with a packed car, moved to Dallas. I've been there ever since. We showed up in Dallas on Sunday night, May the, uh, May the 10th. Monday morning, May the 11th, I took her to an abortion clinic. She had an abortion. And Tuesday morning, May the 12th, I turned 22 years old. I got a job that summer in, uh, and decided, you know, that uh, I would work. I'd been accepted at uh, Vanderbilt Law School, and I was, had, had plans to go to law school in Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Had my life all planned out. I was going to go to law school, write for the law school journal, uh, get out, graduate, practice law for a few years, run for Congress, and be a professional politician. God has a sense of humor. <laughs> and so I decided right then and there, uh, that morning that we had an abortion, that my political career was over because I was politically very conservative, but socially I was very liberal. And uh, the hypocrisy in my life was definitely going to get out, so I just decided that, that politics is over for me. And, uh, and then I decided I'm going to find my life in working. So I worked hard, succeeded quickly, and did very well. But there was always that gnawing feeling, you know, that something's not right. Then I decided, okay, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to party hard. I did that for a long time. And still, it just didn't fill up on me on the inside. And so finally one day, some friends of mine were going to a Bible study. They invited me. I went afterwards in Bible study teacher invited me to lunch and took him to went to lunch and uh we we uh had lunch together he looked across the table and looked at me and said if you were to die tonight are you sure you'd go to heaven absolutely i'm sure i'm 23 and a half years old smart good looking <laughs> rich nice guy i just can't imagine god turning a nice guy away from heaven Sure, I'm going to go to heaven. And I said to him, I said, you know, I've been a good guy. That you, and I made some scales. Like, these are the scales of justice, right? So I said, if you add up all the good in my life against the bad, the good outweighs, I went like this, shook my hand, good outweighs the bad. And I don't think a good God would turn a good guy away from a good heaven. 
I was so proud of that response. I thought, man, that's a good response. <laughs> and he looked at me for a few minutes, shook his head. He said, he said, that sounds great. The only problem has nothing to do with what the Bible says. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, the Bible says, is it all of our goodness is like filthy rags before the Lord, that we've all sinned and all have missed the glory of God. He said, have you ever accepted Christ into your life? I said, no. He said, would you like to? I said, sure. <laughs> I know. Whatever. If it helps, great. I'll take it. <laughs> so he said, take my hand. And we, by this time, we were in my front seat of my car. I said, take my hand. Now, I wasn't in the habit of holding hands with other guys <laughs> in the front seat of my car. But I decided that I would do what he said do. And so I put my hand on the console. He put his hand on top of mine. He said, now I want you to pray after me. And he led me through the sinner's prayer. And uh, when he got through praying, uh, he looked at me and said, congratulations, you're born again now. Well, I have to be honest with you. I wasn't a bit more born again than a man in the moon, if there is such a thing. And uh, because the whole time he was praying, I was looking around making sure nobody's looking at me. He took me to get a new Bible, introduced me to some friends of his, and uh, he, uh, you know, kind of introduced me to the Christian life. And so I had a new Bible, had some new friends, and now I started to in a new church. About 10 days went by, and I had never even cracked the new Bible open, nothing. I mean, I just sort of was trying to fake it till I make it, you know, kind of deal. And, uh, and one morning, uh, I woke up. And I, was, I lived in a single apartment by myself, and I woke up, and I felt like there was a, a weight on my chest. I was having trouble breathing. And, uh, and I rolled out of bed, got on my knees beside my bed, and I said, Lord, if you'll forgive me for calling myself a Christian and not living like one, then from this moment forward, I'll live to serve you. And believe it or not, the presence of the Lord came in my room that day. I've never been the same since. I mean, just in an instant, I was born again. In an instant, my life changed. And in an instant, I just wanted to know the Lord. I just wanted to, I couldn't get enough of his word. I couldn't get enough of him. I couldn't get enough of church. I, I just couldn't get enough of the Lord. And it was life-changing to me, for me. That was in February of 1983. And I'm uh, grateful to report to you this morning that by the grace of God, I'm still hungry for Jesus. I still want more. I'm still, I still want more. I feel like that every piece and part and parcel of my life has been preparing me for what's ahead. So I'm anticipating a move of the Holy Spirit and I'm anticipating a move of God right here this morning. That's what I'm believing for. I want to thank Rob and Michelle McCoy. I mean, they are awesome, are they not? I mean, God shows his favor on anybody of a body of believers by the kind of leaders that he gives them. And God has highly favored you with amazing leaders. I want you to give Rob and Michelle a big round of applause. They love you. They carry you in their hearts. They're awesome leaders. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here. I was here this Sunday after Easter in April and had a chance to be with you. I talked to you that day about hope. I told you that hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And uh, we, we talked about that. We had a really a, a wonderful meeting, a wonderful time together. And so this morning, uh, as I have something in my heart for you, I believe we're going to have an equally wonderful time this morning. It's really going to be awesome. I want to show you a picture of my family so you know that I'm a real person. Um, this is my family. This is my wife, Nancy, and I, and we have a daughter and we have a son. I'll let you try to figure out which one's my son, which one's my daughter. And both of them are married, and each one of them has three little girls. Yeah. I got six granddaughters. And I'm going to tell you something. I, I'm going to teach them how to hunt, fish, shoot, ride, 
Uh, you know. They have twins on the end. They'll be one year old on October the 7th. And, uh, and so the little girls are named Indy, Sigrid, Cameron, Birdie, Goldie, and Sadie. Those are the girls. And, uh, and so I'm very proud of my family and thank God for it. I came to Dallas uh, as a one person, and now I am 12. And so I'm grateful for that, and I think that's awesome. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this moment that we've had here together. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us. And Lord, you've brought us together this morning, not just so we could check the box and say we made it to church, but Lord, so that we could hear from the throne of heaven. So we just choose now just to lay off every burden that we brought in here, every weight, every encumbrance. Lord, all the worries and the anxieties of the day, all the plans that we have for later, we just put them down for a moment. And we put our attention totally, completely, and irrevocably on you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start this morning with a story. A real story, not a fake story, but a real story. A story of a little girl named Monica Cora. This is her picture behind me. Monica is from um, Norway. She was a track athlete at Southern Methodist University. By the way, I didn't get a chance to tell you I'm the chaplain of the SMU football team, which are now 5-0. I've been in the top 25 this week. And, uh, and so, uh, so Monica was an a exchange student and a full scholarship track athlete at Southern Methodist University. She was a world-class um, uh, long-distance runner, and uh, cross-country was her main event, and she was really really good. And uh, today she lives in Norway. But before I tell you a little bit about her life today, let me just tell you what happened to her while she was at SMU. While she was at SMU, she excelled in the classroom because she was great, spoke English very well. She also excelled in the track field. She was uh, all-conference in track. And, uh, and she also excelled socially. She had lots, lots of friends. Uh, Christmas time, uh, before, uh, as school was getting out at the Christmas break in 2009, she and two of her friends went to a Christmas party right off campus. And so that night at the Christmas party, they had lots of friends there, and they were saying goodbye to some of the seniors, and they were dancing and laughing and having a wonderful, powerful time that night, just, just celebrating what a great year that they'd had together. And so Monica and her friends decided about 1 o'clock in the morning, hey, it's time to get home. We need to get out of here. And so she and her two friends said goodbye to everybody, put their jackets on. It was, very, it was a cold evening uh, there in Dallas. And put their jackets on. They headed out the front door laughing and talking together. As they made the turn at the bottom of the sidewalk to head to their car, suddenly somebody grabbed her from behind. And the next thing she knew, she was in the grasp of someone that she didn't, had never seen before, didn't know. And he had a gun to her head. Her friends tried to struggle with him a little bit until he said, I'll, I'll blow her head off if you keep doing it. And they dragged her to an unmarked white van, slammed the door open, and threw her in. And they rode around for the next 90 minutes sexually assaulting her. They stripped her down. They raped her once, twice, three at a time. They held her head down to the ground. They said, if you don't do exactly what we tell you to do, we'll kill you. And for 90 minutes, they beat her, assaulted her, and tortured her. When they finally got through with her, they were in a very dangerous part of town. And they took duct, duct tape, taped her mouth and her head. And they taped her hands behind her back. And they kicked her out of the van. They told her to run. She was totally naked. She ran. She tried to flag down people. And obviously, people were scared, didn't know what to do. People kept going by her. It was uh, under 40 degrees that night in the high 30s. And, uh, and so here she is, having been assaulted now and beaten in the wee hours of the morning. 
in a very dangerous part of town. She said, I was afraid that if I flagged someone down that the same thing would happen to me again. Finally, a plainclothes police officer pulled up to her, calmed her down, called 911, the ambulance, marked cars came. They took her to the hospital. And this next picture is a picture of her in the emergency room. You can still see the duct tape around her neck, what's left of it, as she was treated and examined there. Monica Cora made a decision that night. Her first thought was that somehow she had survived this assault. And her second thought was that she would never let her life be defined by what happened to her. If anybody has ever had a reason to hold unforgiveness towards another individual, she had a reason. And today, that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about unforgiveness. If you brought your Bible, you can look on with me, but I want to start today in kind of a place you might not think be normal to start. I want to start today with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. As I told you, I'm a chaplain for the SMU football team. I've been doing it for 10 years now. I, I love working with that age group. One of my former players who now plays for the Rams is right back here in this room. Good to see you, Justin. I'll buy, I'll buy you lunch. You're going to buy me lunch this time, maybe. <laughs> You'll pay this time. All right, good. And so I've been doing this for 10 years, and I love working with these guys and love working with them. And, and, uh, and so before every game, like clockwork, these guys recite the Lord's Prayer. And so I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church where every Sunday we recited the Lord's Prayer. None of us really knew exactly what it meant or said, but we recited it, right? And so I thought this morning we might recite it together. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the Bible says, In this manner, therefore pray. You can follow along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debtors as we forgive those who, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Somebody say amen. amen. Yeah. Y'all familiar with that, with that right? Most everybody is. I mean, if anybody's been to church for any time uh, at all, we've all said that prayer. And that prayer has, is a topical prayer. And so each one of those topics is meaningful to a Christian in, in a Christian's life. But what we don't remember is the very next verse after the Lord's Prayer. And the very next verse, verse 14, goes like this. For if you forgive men their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, then neither will your Father forgive you of yours. I don't know if you ever thought about that before, but I mean, the Lord could have emphasized almost any one of those points. He could emphasize the fact that God is our Father. He could have talked about that and brought the very next verse after we recited the prayer, he could have brought the attention all to the Father. Or, or he could have brought the attention all to the kingdom. You know, he taught, preached and on the kingdom of heaven for 40 days after his resurrection. He could have taught all about that. He could have taught how he's our provider and how he would meet our needs and how he would give us our daily needs every day. He would take care of us just like a, a, a mother takes care of her child. He would take care of us. He could have talked about all that kind of stuff. But what did he mention after the Lord? What was the most important? What was most importantly on his heart in that moment? If you forgive others, then our Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then neither will he forgive you of your sins. Interesting, is it not? We're going to talk about a parable this morning. That was my introduction. 
Yeah, this morning I let everybody out about 15 minutes early, but you know what? You're going to stay here the whole time, baby. <laughs> I had to throw my testimony in there. Make it long enough. We're going to talk about a parable this morning. A parable is real simple. A parable is an earthly message that has a heavenly meaning. It's a story. Jesus used about one-third of his teaching he taught using stories. If you look at the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain all the parables that Jesus has said. And depending on how you count, that's somewhere around 35, 36, 37 of those parables. And this morning, we're going to look at one from Matthew chapter 18. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's a parable that Jesus spoke having been, having responded to Peter. And so if you brought your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 21. The Bible says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? He was thinking of the, you know, the law, the Old Testament mandate, the teaching of the Pharisees. And, uh, And that idea was, is that, you know, you could come and slap me once, I'd forgive you, twice, three, four, five, six, seven times. But the eighth time you slap me, I'm going to knock your nose right off your head, right? So seven times, is that enough? I mean, this guy's really starting to annoy me. So seven times, is that enough for me to forgive him? Jesus answers really interestingly. He says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, I don't know if you're like like me, but I quickly do the math, 490. Because I guarantee there's people in my life that are way over 490 right now. (laughs) Right? I mean, I just get irritated when I see them. (laughs) Therefore, the king, it says, he said, not seven times, but 70 times seven. What was Jesus saying? Okay, so for 490 times, you can slap me, but the 491st time, I'm taking you down. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that we would forgive and continue to forgive and continue to forgive. And then he tells a parable, an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. The interesting thing about these parables is that they have a face value meaning. You know, Jesus said uh, uh, the kingdom is like a pearl merchant who went and he found a great pearl and he sold all the pearls that he had in order to purchase the one great pearl of value. It has a meaning that we can all understand at, at an earthly level. But underneath the surface, there's another meaning. The meaning here is that when you find Jesus, you will subordinate everything else in your life because of the great value he brings to you. So there's underneath, there's a heavenly meaning to it, right? Well, this one is no different. He says, the kingdom of heaven, in verse 23, can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. So there came a moment where this rich king who had loaned money out to different subjects decided, I need to make an account of all the different loans that I have out there. I need to find it. Who's paying and who's not paying? Who's on time? Who's not on time? Who's about to get paid off? Who's still in arrears? I need to find out all this stuff. And so, so Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king like this. So it reminds us that God is going to call us into account for the loan of the gift and the opportunities that he's given us. And so he wanted to decide to bring his counts up to date with the servants who'd borrowed money from him. Verse 24 says that in the process of doing this, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. And you can imagine the fear and trepidation that this guy came in with. Because he wasn't just a small uh, creditor, he, uh, debtor. He, was a, he was huge. He had a huge amount of debt that he owed, millions of dollars to the king. Verse 25 says, but he couldn't pay. He just couldn't pay. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. I, you, I, 
you know, I, I know I owe you. I, there's no, I'm not trying to fight you on that. I know that it's your money. I, I got all that. I just can't pay. I don't have it. He said, I couldn't pay. So his master, the king, ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned in order to pay the debt. This is a sad day. This is the day that he has to account before God, before, he, before the king, about his, the king's investment in him. And he realizes that he is totally and irrevocably unable to pay. And so the king says, you, your wife, and your children, and all that you owe are going to be sold. You're going to jail until I get all my millions back, which is never, because he can't pay. The Bible says in verse 26, but the man fell down before his master, begged him, please be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave him his debt. Another way to say filled with pity was he had compassion upon him. He felt compassion towards him. So this guy owes me a ton, but there's no way he'll ever pay. And in order for me to get what I deserve, it's going to take ruining his life and his family to get it. And because he's humbled himself fallen at my feet, begged me. I've had compassion upon him. So he said, the master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave him his debt. He marked it paid in full. It's done. It's over with. This reminds us of something, I think. Remember, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You see, me and you, we're that unforgiving servant. We owe Jesus a debt, a debt of sin we had against us that there was no way possible for us to pay, none. But God in his great mercy that while we were yet sinners, the Bible said, he, Christ, died for us. He gave his life for us and he paid the price, the price of our redemption. He forgave us of our debt he released us from the penalty of sin and he set us free to have a relationship with him. And so he was filled with compassion for him. He released him and forgave him his debt. Verse 28, the story begins to take a twist. So this newfound man with his newfound freedom with no debts against him, what does he do? When he left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand dollars. Now remember, he'd owed millions. But here was somebody that owed him just a little, a few thousand dollars. And so he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. But his creditor, his fellow servant, fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. You notice that his fellow servant did exactly the same thing before this servant as he had done before the king. But entirely different response. Verse 30 says, but his creditor wouldn't wait. And he had the man arrested and put into prison until the debt could be paid in full. Now, when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. And they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And the king called in the man whom he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And verse 34 says, then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured. Everybody say tortured. Say it again. The angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Period. Close your Bible. Man, praise God for that story. Right? Thank you, Lord, that you shared that story with us. And you know what? You did the right thing. Uh, the king did the right thing. He should have. I, you know what? That's exactly what should have happened. But unfortunately for me and you, that's not where the story ends. The story doesn't end till the next verse. And the next verse says, 
That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Whoa. Why did they have to put that in there? (laughs) Y'all have any refrigerator verses at your house? Those are the verses that you cut out of the Bible and put on your refrigerator because it reminds you of the great promises of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, and that means you, Joe, would believe in him, have eternal life, and not be subject to condemnation. Or maybe you have another one is that you're going to be always victorious in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I like that one. Whatever your refrigerator verse is, I just encourage you, cut this one out and put that up there next to it. That's what my heavenly father will do to you. What is that? Torture you. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. One of the things that we have to make up our mind about this morning and sort of every time we go back to the word, I love it that when you read the word, it reads you. You ever notice that? You're reading it and it's reading you. And we have these spectacles that we put on about what we feel like the nature of God is. And, and I'm going to tell you, there's times when I look at it and think, that doesn't really fit what I thought God was. And this is one of those verses. How could a loving God do something like this? Well, the answer is that a loving God gave you a way of escape. You just didn't take it. He had compassion upon you. You just didn't receive it. That's what my heavenly father will do to you. What is that? Put you in prison to be tortured until you pay off the debt that you owe. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Everybody say heart. From your heart. Let's talk about unforgiveness for a moment. Unforgiveness. First of all, everybody's familiar with it. Unforgiveness is we hold something against another person who's brought injustice towards us. Someone who's hurt us, someone who's defamed us, someone's spoken all manner of evil against us, or someone who's used us spitefully, people that have hated us. And, and unforgiveness is our judgment towards them for bringing the injustice to us. And so when we hold unforgiveness towards someone, we, we are saying that, you know, that person is bad. It's evil. You pick the word. And, and so let's talk just a little bit about what that unforgiveness really consists of. Number one is unforgiveness is like a poison. It's a poison. It's funny, though, this kind of poison is the kind of poison that you take the pill, you swallow it, and you wait for them to get sick and die. That's what unforgiveness is. You take the pill, you swallow it, and you wait for them to get sick and die. It's not going to get them sick or kill them. It's getting you sick and going to kill you. Because unforgiveness is like a poison. Number two. Unforgiveness is like a prison. It locks you into a day and time when you were offended, when you were hurt, when an injustice was measured towards you. Maybe it's a season of your life. Maybe when you were a kid or maybe it's a time in your teenage years or it locks you into that. And it makes, it's a prison because Like Monica Cora said, I'm not going to let this define me. But in order for her not to let what happened to her define her, she had to do something. Holding unforgiveness towards someone locks you into a prison. Unforgiveness makes you a perpetual victim. That's the third thing. And what unforgiveness does, it locks you into the prison of always being a victim. 
that you would never have gotten or you would have gotten much further in life or been more successful or had a better marriage or you'd done a better job with your kids or you'd been more prosperous if someone hadn't have done something to you. But here's what they did to you back in this time in your life and it's easy to go back there and just stay there and say, I was mistreated, I was mishandled, I was hurt and really the truth is you still are. But now, rather than just a fresh cut, it's festered and gangrene. Unforgiveness makes you a victim. Unforgiveness robs you of gratefulness. You can't enjoy the moment. Why? Because they did this to me. Keeps you from being grateful for the life that you have. Why? Because you would have had a better life had they not done this to you. And so you're never grateful for what you have. You're not grateful for the marriage that you have because past marriage I had, this is what they did to me. And if they did to me in the past, the very same thing might happen to me today. Robs you of gratefulness. Unforgiveness thrives within an inner vow judgment. How many of you know or are familiar with what an inner vow is? You can raise your hand if you are, but if you're not, that's okay. Most of you are not. An inner vow, see the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged, for in the same measure that you judge, it'll be measured back to you. Everybody's familiar with that, right? And so an inner vow is a judgment against someone. An inner vow is, let's just take, for instance, you had a parent who was an alcoholic. And you, at a very early age, realized that their alcoholism has destroyed your family or is destroying your family. And so what you say is, is I will never be an alcoholic. I'll never touch alcohol. Okay, that's a good thing, right? Okay, but the problem is, is it's tied to because I hate what he's done to us I hate him for what he's done. That's an inner vow. It's tied to a judgment. And so what happens is, is you go about your life, years go by, and you finally get married. But you have this inner vow that I'll never drink. And lo and behold, your spouse, because of the inner vow and the working of that spiritual law, judge not lest you be judged, for the same measure you judge, you'd be measured back to you. That law is working in your life. And now the person that you married that didn't drink before has suddenly become an alcoholic. Or maybe they're a drug addict. Or perhaps both of you are teetotalers. But you wake up one morning and you find out your son has an alcohol problem. Or your daughter is mixed up with drugs. Why? Because judge not, lest you be judged. For with the same measure that you judge, it'll be measured back to you. Interval judgment. Unforgiveness thrives within intervals. It thrives within judgment. Okay? Unforgiveness over time becomes bitterness. That's the infection that sets in after you've been hurt and not properly taking care of that wound. Bitterness. How many of you know somebody's bitter? You don't have to raise your hand because they might be right here right now. <laughs> How many of you know somebody's bitter? It's just hard to hang with them. It's hard to be around them. They're just bitter. Everything. They're just upset about life, about, about the world. If you unwind that back to their earliest life, Somewhere there, you're going to find unforgiveness. Unforgiveness that has now become festered and become bitterness. The Bible says that a root of bitterness defiles the whole thing. It's just like an infection that when you touch it, the infection comes on you. Bitterness, unforgiveness over time becomes bitterness. Unforgiveness towards your parents is catastrophic. This is something that I would suppose probably 80 to 90% of us in the room had to deal with. Why is that true? Why is unforgiveness towards our parents 
catastrophic. Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, we should honor our father and mother. It is the first commandment with a promise attached to it. That if we honor our father and mother, that all will go well with us in our life and we'll live long. Said, well, you don't know what my mother and father did to me. I don't even know who my father is. I never met him. uh, Or my father abandoned us financially, abandoned us uh, emotionally as an early kid. I had to make it without him. And if you just knew what he was like and what he did, how he abused us or, or, or how he hurt us or the things that happened, then you would know that we would not be able to honor our father and mother. Sometimes one of the best ways that you can honor someone is just not say anything negative about them. And the fact that you're here drawing a breath today reminds us that you had a mother and a father, that they gave you life, and they gave you the opportunity you have with that life to accept Christ and live eternally, which you've done. And so what we can look at if we look back at our life and say, you know, my life has not gone very well. I have chronic sickness, chronic stuff going into my life. That just, just listen, this is not always the case. But is there somewhere back there where you've dishonored your parents? And if there is, it's real easy to get it straightened out. Some of you are still trying to please your father who's been dead for years. You're trying to live up to wherever it is that he wanted you to live up to. Listen, you got to drop that. (laughs) Because no matter what you do, you're not going to get him to affirm you. You know why? He's incapable. He's incapable. It's like trying to get a special needs child to do a complicated math Algebra. Uh, and and I, there's nothing in special needs child. I, I love they, they, That's just not where their capabilities lie. They have relational capabilities. They have all kinds, maybe some vocational capabilities, but they don't have any math aptitude or you can't, this thing they're incapable. You can't do it. Unforgiveness towards your parents can be catastrophic. And what happens is that when we hold unforgiveness, when we hold this bitterness towards our parents or to a coach, a teacher, um, a sibling, a loved one, a former spouse. And here, I'm going to add one to the list here. One of the biggest. Or we hold unforgiveness towards ourselves. The Bible says then we are turned over to the tormentors, the torturers. What, what are they? When I, when I think of that word, a torturer, my uh, goes immediately back to medieval times, you know, and a dungeon, and you go down in a dungeon, and they got you on a rack, and, you know, and they, you know, they're torturing you. But these, these spiritual tormentors, spiritual torturers are totally different. Insomnia. Just can't sleep. Nightmares. Recurring, anxiety attacks, habitual worry, habitual fear, jealousy, envy, always looking at what the other person has. And, you know, envy says, I want what they got. Jealousy says, I want theirs. Right? Hatred. Indifference. These are all tormentors. Confusion. Schizophrenia. Paranoia. An obsessive compulsive mind. An overly driven personality. A dis- emotional disconnection between you and the people that you love. People that love you. These are all symptoms of holding unforgiveness. Listen, look at me. 
They're not the only, they're not, this is not the only thing. There could be other issues too, okay? But I just want to narrow it down to some of the tormentors that people, those of us in the room haven't been able to forgive what we've subjected ourselves to as a result. Let's talk about what does it mean to forgive someone else. Number one, forgiveness is a decision. It's not a feeling. We don't wake up one morning and you know what? I just feel like I can forgive him. No, because that same feeling, the next day you'll feel like, I feel like I shouldn't. (laughs) I feel like I need to. I feel like I don't need to. So forgiveness is never about a feeling that you have. Forgiveness really is about a decision that you make. And the decision that you make is that you want to honor God and please God with your life. And so I'm going to decide to forgive those who've hurt me. To release those who've spitefully used me. Who've spoken all manner of evil against me. Who've abused me psychologically. Who've abused me mentally. Who've, who've abused me so, uh, 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 sexually. Who've abused me physically. I, I'm going to forgive them. That's a decision that I'm going to make. I'm going to forgive them. And so forgiveness begins with a decision. Number two, forgiveness is always an act of obedience. I'm going to obey the scriptures. Jesus calls us to forgive. (laughs) He even put it in the Lord's Prayer. And then to make sure that you got it in the Lord's Prayer, he put it in the first verse after the Lord's Prayer. And now he's telling a story about it. It's really pretty important that we forgive. Jesus on the cross had every reason to bring judgment down on all creation. And what do you say? Forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. Let them go. Forgiveness is an act of obedience. Number three, forgiveness does not minimize the offense or the offender. Forgiveness doesn't say, if I forgive you, then what you did with me was really okay. No. What you did to me was bad. It's going to stay bad, no matter what kind of decision I make. So forgiveness doesn't minimize the offense that happened to you. Forgiveness doesn't minimize the offender. No. You hurt me. Period. Exclamation point. Nothing else needs to be said about it. What you did, what you said, how you responded, how you reacted, it hurt me. But I have decided and I make a choice that I'm going to forgive you because of it. I'm going to let you go. And by the way, a lot of times when you're offended by someone, they don't know that they're offending you. Here's the thing about offenses. You can only take the offense. We take offense. Here's the thing. When one comes, don't take it. Don't take, it's like a, don't take the bait. In fact, that's what the word comes from. The Greek, a scandalon. It's a, it was a piece of meat that was put at the end of a sharp stick. And the, the prey would come and bite the meat. They would take the scandalon and the sharp stick would impale them and kill them. So don't take it. Next time somebody offends you, just don't take it. Look, you, listen, you can never give offense. You can only take it. So just don't take it, right? Number four, forgiveness forfeits our right to judge others. So forgiveness just says, you know what? I'm going to commend you to the great judge, to the righteous judge who knows all the facts who knows all the consequences, knows all the stuff, and I'm going to commend you to him and and let him deal with you. What forgiveness says is I'm going to step away from being the judge. I got a friend back in Dallas who told me one time, he said, you know, you're a really, really good judger. He wasn't being flatterous. He said, you're a really, really good judge. He said, maybe Jesus will let you help him on judgment day. You're so good at it. (laughs) 
some of us have become professional judges. I mean, we're just good at it, right? Judging others, making fun of others. Forgiveness forfeits our right to judge them. Number five, forgiveness says, because God first forgave me, therefore I will forgive you. You see, in this parable of the unforgiving servant, you and me, we're that servant. We're the ones. And like I said before, we had a debt that we could not pay ourselves. And we deserve to be thrown in prison and tortured for eternity. Sin. But God, in his great mercy towards us, while that we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us and made it possible for us to be reunited, reconnected to God. And so because God forgave me of my sin, is it too little of a thing for me to forgive you because of your sin towards me? Here's a, here's a little sentence for you. I think this will be helpful. Forgiving someone is a choice that we make to release and pardon that person by commending them to God, the righteous judge. So when we forgive someone, we pardon them, we release them, we let them go. But we don't just let them go out there in the air somewhere. We commend them to the righteous judge. God you know all the story behind this thing. Not just some of it, you know all of it. And so, Lord, I recognize my finite knowledge and understanding of everything that's gone on here. And I release this person and I let him go. At the end of last service, we had several people come to the altar and just getting their hearts right because, see, we've got to forgive from our hearts. But after the service, one man came to me and he said, said, you know, I really need to forgive my mom. And I don't even have a clue how to do it. I said, well, first thing you need to know is that it's a decision. You got to decide that it's the right thing to do if I want to live a life that's pleasing and honorable to God. So you decide that you want to forgive her. That's the first thing. And then number two, then you say so. I'll lead you through a little prayer, but you will make a acknowledgement with your spoken words to let her go. And so we prayed the prayer together there. And I just led him through the prayer. I forgive my mother. I forgive my mother for everything that's in my heart towards her. Everything's in my heart. I let her go now. And I commend her to you, Jesus. He said, now, when I see her, you know, do I talk to her? And I said, well, the Lord may open the door for you to try to reconcile with her, but he may not. But here's what you can tell her, is you can tell her, you know, all my life I've had a problem forgiving you. But, you know, last Sunday, I really made it official. And from my heart, Mom, I forgave you. She may say, well, that's because I was right always. She may say, because you should have. Or she may say, but you know what? Forgiving her has nothing to do with what she, how she responds to it or how she doesn't respond to it. You know what? You may need to forgive your mother and she's not even living anymore. You may need to forgive your mother and she's not even capable of having a conversation with you anymore about it. But it's not about her response, her acknowledgement, her affirmation, her way of thinking. It's about you. Because when you hold unforgiveness for you, it's like you ingesting the poison and watching her and waiting for her to die. Nothing's going to change. Unforgiveness changes you and gives you the freedom to live your life in the moment for everything that God has for you, for everything that he has for you. So how do you do it? Make a decision that you're going to forgive. Find somebody to pray with. Call her name, his name out loud and let him go. Now, what's going to happen the minute that you do that, you're not going to suddenly feel, oh, wow, I'm with the Lord again. 
No, it's going to be a process for most of you. Especially the deeper it is, it's more, it's a, that's why Jesus said, I don't say seven times. I say seven times 70. Why? Because every time the thought of her comes up in your mind, there's that residue still in your heart that wants to hate her. You got to let that go. That's why I said seven times. Seven. You got to keep going until one day you're going to wake up and there's not going to be any residue left there anymore. You're going to be free. You're going to be free. This morning, early, as I was praying for all of you and praying for this service together, I felt like the Holy Spirit told, told me that he was going to meet you before you ever got here today, and he's going to begin to put people in your heart and in your mind that you need to forgive. That while I've been preaching, some of you have seen this person in your head already. You've replayed, even in this moment we're together here, the hurt that they inflicted upon you. You feel it. Your jaw tightens. Fist clenches. Heart rate goes up. Respiration grows up. That, that's the person we need to forgive. That's the one we need to let go of. That's the one that you're still waiting to die. And you're the one dying. That's the one that keeps you having dreams at night. That's the one that keeps you from sleeping. Say, well, well I've, it's long ago and I've long forgotten about it. Isn't it funny how it still bothers you, though? I didn't tell you the end of the story with Monica Cora. Two years after the assault, all three of her perpetrators had been caught and went to trial. Two of them were convicted of life in prison with no parole. The third was convicted of 25 years. And one of the reasons that the third was convicted of 25 years is because, number one, he showed great remorse. He'd contacted Monica, and he had said to her that, you know, he took full responsibility for what happened during the night. He could have saved her from all that, and he didn't. And he was high on drugs, and he was hanging with the wrong people. But it was fully, completely his fault. And he asked if she could find it in her heart at some point in her life to forgive him. And he begged for her forgiveness. She went to see him in prison. And as she sat in the chair and looked through the glass as he came up and sat down, she said he had tears in his eyes. And she said, I don't hate you for what you did to me. He said, she said, uh, she said, I don't hate you for what happened, but I hate what you did, for, did to me. But I'm not going to let what you did to me define the rest of my life. I, and then she said those three words, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. She said, last time I talked to her, she said that she still keeps in touch with him and that he has turned out to be a model prisoner in the Texas prison system. That he's come to Christ, got his life right with God, that he attends a Bible study, and that he's one of the leaders in the Christian m movement in that prison. The other two are still in maximum security. But she said again, she said, I'm not going to let what they did to me define me. My life's not defined by what happened those 90 minutes on that cold night in December in Dallas, Texas. I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to enjoy the people that God's put in my life. I'm going to be everything that I can be because I'm going to forgive them and let them go. She's written a book, if you want to read more of this story, it's called Kill the Silence by Monica Cora. She's an amazing young woman. She has a phenomenal life. She lives back in Norway now. And she's an amazing young woman. But she brought all of us a lesson 
was that lesson? That no matter what somebody does to you, you can forgive them. And that forgiving them is not about them. It's about me. It's about me. Mike, I want you to go ahead and bring your worship team up. We're going to finish uh, today. And I'm just going to open this altar. Open this reason. The reason I'm opening this altar is because I think it's important for us to respond to God's word in faith. And I know that when you make a step towards this altar, that you are operating in faith. You're believing that God will move in your life and give you not just the courage, but give you the grace to forgive and to release. Let, let me just get a little closer. And just, I'd like to be down here close to you. Because I want to tell you from my heart, the hardest person in your life to forgive is not your parents, siblings, your ex-spouse. That's not the hardest person to forgive. The hardest person to forgive is yourself. That one's hard because you knew better. That one's hard because you should have done better. That one's hard because you could have stopped it and you didn't. That was hard because you really know you. But I'm telling you, if you don't forgive you, you're going to be in a prison the rest of your life. A prison of guilt, a prison of shame, a prison of pain. So let yourself go. Some of you are chronically ill because you can't forgive yourself. Let yourself go. Jesus forgave you. He paid the price for everything you did, everything you will do, everything you've ever done. He paid it. You can forgive yourself.